Hey, Digitally China is produced together with our friends at Radii, this awesome independent media platform. If you're interested in culture and innovation in China, you should definitely check out RadioChina.com. They'll give you an inside look into everything from China's underground music scene to bike sharing. That's R-A-D-I-I-China.com. Western brands that doesn't understand these young Chinese brands would be really obsolete. You know, they would have a hard time. Copycat, Chinese ripoff, a cheap version of an expensive product. These sentences are top of mind for many when think about Chinese brands. But the last few years, something has happened: a new generation of domestic brands growing up. Competitive prices, good quality, and then the X factor that has been missing among the older generation of companies: a very well-crafted overall brand image, everything from the packaging to the social media campaigns. With Eva Wei, I have a very special guest with me, Emmy Teo. Hey, Tom. We're going to discuss the rise of domestic brands of China that, in many categories, even are outcompeting the Western equivalents. Welcome to Digitally China, a podcast about the fascinating Chinese, Chinese tech, tech industry. industry created together with Radii. I'm Eva. I'm Jacob, and I'm Tom. So, according to various studies, China's gaming industry is now, in fact, the largest in the world. You may know their messaging app called WeChat. Chinese outbound M&A. Chinese corporates are buying international uh, companies at a record pace. The hottest phone you've probably never heard of. China's Xiaomi. Yes, it's state. It's claim to Apple's credit. Major deal over in China. You have Chinese tech giant Tencent leading an 8.6 billion dollar acquisition to buy a major stake in Supercell. 14.3 billion dollars in sales clocked by a Chinese e-commerce site in one wild day. Before we start talking about domestic brands, maybe you just want to do a quick introduction of who you are. My name is Emmy. So、uh, I'm actually from Singapore. So I've been in China, specifically Shanghai, for two years. So I'm the co-founder and CEO of Fuse. So basically, for Fuse, we help new brands enter the market, and we put these brands into different locations. So with these locations, we also deploy new retail technology to help the brands understand their performance offline. So you know, this gives us clarity and visibility to how the brand perform in a new market, specifically in new cities, in the new regions, or even in new countries. So because of、um, how we work with the new brands, we've Also have an assess of local brands that is trying to enter and trying to present themselves in a different way to our target audience. So you know, instead of really just being online, now these new local brands also have a need to be showcased offline.、Mm-hmm. So you know, we 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 are quite fortunate, you know, because of that, we we have actually worked with、uh, a number of local brands that is up and rising, and we do see. The opportunity of them like being able to make it big in the global market as well. So the context for today is about domestic brands of China and the rise for them, and that's mainly being fed by the new tier one consumer of China. All these new young consumers have been traveling the world, have access to social media, exposure to all these Western brands, and they've kind of matured over the last few years into wanting more and understanding exactly what they need. When you moved here and started working with marketing and brands, was that a surprise to you? 
Yeah, I think for me, um, it's very much a surprise because, you know, coming from Singapore, you would think that, hey, you know, you, you're exposed to um, the Western brands and you thought that you have pretty good taste and you should like know a lot better than the young Chinese consumers over here. But in fact, I think we're very much wrong. So Chinese consumers has evolved a lot. You know, when I say a lot, it means like literally a lot. So they're looking at brands in three areas. You know, they're looking at the price point, they're looking at the brand story itself, uh, which also includes the packaging, and then also the product itself. So, you know, there's three areas that they look at, price, packaging, and the product. So it's actually very interesting because when they choose to buy a products, they even though they have plenty of choice, they could do a very, very quick assessment of how is the price compared to the packaging, um, compared to the actual products itself, and they make the best choice. So, you know, in, in that context, actually, it is even harder to, you know, for new brands to acquire the young Chinese tier one consumers. Yeah, I think many years ago, there were this kind of common understanding that mostly Western brands had good enough brands, good enough star power, and definitely good enough products in order to attract kind of the more affluent target customer. But now lately, we've we've seen a development that uh, a lot of domestic brands have been developing very rapidly and offering basically the same thing, but at a slightly lower price. Do you think Western brands have understood this yet? I think the Western brands have started to realize that it is not as easy as before, you know, to sell something. So especially it is at disadvantage that any brands that comes into China from an overseas market needs to get tax, right? Mm -hmm. There's a custom tax and there's also a VAT, or goods and consumer tax, right? Where you have to pay up front when you're trying to sell to a local consumer. So if this brand is trying to sell in China, their price is going to be more expensive than the local counterparts. So um, what the Western brands, what the Western brand didn't understand that is they have to make up for, you know, this price by providing more values in their products or packaging, you know. So like this is where the Western brands doesn't get it. So they feel like, hey, you know, they, they should do the same thing and the Chinese consumers would just come. Uh, but it is not what we are seeing today. So today, together with you, Emmy, we're going to talk about mainly two topics. One is about furniture and the second one is about fashion. So let's start with furniture. I think the interesting thing about the furniture category is that it is extremely hard to sell furniture online. So we know that... Um, the, the young Chinese consumers buys everything online, right? Mm -hmm. But we're looking at selling furnitures online, really? Okay, so they, they don't get to see, they don't get to try, they don't even get to figure out the quality of the product itself, right? So there there is a tremendous amount of difficulty selling any furnitures online. But what we are seeing today is two very, very good new Chinese brands that started between 2013 to 2014. So they've been like in the market for the last about four or five years. And they've made tremendous amount of growth over the last few years with the tier one Chinese young consumers. Um, and, and, and I think it's specifically interesting to share both brands, you know, how they do it and, you know, just a bit about the background. One is Zhi Ying, the other one is Zhao Zhuo. 
If you are a Chinese consumer, these two brands are not going to be extremely foreign to you. We can talk about Zhao Zhuo first. So Zhao Zhuo is a brand, is a Beijing brand, started around 2014. So when they first started, they really have the same vision with IKEA. You know, so they really wanted to be the IKEA of um, hmm. China, but they, you know, they have a twist. You know, they 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 wanted everything to have a bit more design, to be a bit more special. At the same time, it is very clear they're shouting out to the tier one young consumer, because you know we know the older generation of um, Chinese they won't buy anything from IKEA. They're not also IKEA fans. You know, they would buy things from the traditional furnitures market. Hongxing Mei Kailong, specifically, you know, one of the mega malls where just where they just sell furnitures, right? So for Zhao Zhuo, they started online and basically they started really with very simple furnitures, very simple design. Uh, they were not doing any um, offline strategies with a good price point with good designs, this is where they reach out straight towards to the tier one young target audience. Yeah, actually, you know, IKEA is always top of mind for me and I refuse to buy anything but IKEA. But when I was going to buy a new kitchen table, I actually went to Zaozhou and it was astonishing that you had a really well-designed kitchen table slightly over IKEA's price point and it was a domestic local Chinese brand, right? And for me, that was kind of astonishing. Then I actually looked through their designers and actually half of their designers are from Scandinavia you know furniture designers so it's kind of interesting yeah so um, it is very interesting that you mentioned this point because you know when, when we talk about furnitures I mean the first resistance you are going to get is price point right so okay so how do I compare table one versus table two right so how Zhaozhuo did it is basically they look at what IKEA has been selling okay so they sort of understood the kind of price point for each uh, specifically SKU, right? So like a table, it should cost anywhere between a few hundred to about a thousand plus. Maybe the better design one, the bigger one being about two to three thousand mm-hmm. uh, RMB. And then you have different price point that is acceptable, uh, that is deemed acceptable by the young target audience. Um, anywhere between a few hundred quai to a few thousand quai, right? So understanding the price point of this SKU, they first make sure they erase that resistance in their young consumer mind. Exactly like what Tom talked about is, hey, the price point is about the same, but this table is much better in design. It's cooler, right? It, it has a nicer design and the whole story, the whole packaging of it, how they display the story on their Taobao shop on their Tmall shop is a lot better. You know, they they are very sophisticated in terms of online selling where they go in-depth into designing their product details page where they infuse stories and elements of this product. So this way, they just need to work on the product and the packaging because the price is essentially similar to IKEA. So they are like, okay, I'm pretty sure that my target audience is able to accept things of this price because they are buying something similar to IKEA. But hey, I'm going to provide them something better and I'm going to provide them something with a more unique design. 
Yeah, so if we look at Zhaozhou as a specific case, I think one thing that's impressive is that both they are able to access supply chain, enabling them to sell at prices just around IKEA, but at the same time, they are building a really good brand story, beautiful products, actually. And actually, if you go into their retail stores that they've opened lately, you know, it's very well-designed stores and very well thought through and, and based on the kind of old perception of Chinese domestic brands, you would never think this is a local Chinese brand. China being able to produce low price product, that's been there many, many years. Why do you think, you know, especially in the furniture industry, we are seeing new, like very well built brands now? I mean, you have to look at um, a simple fact, right? Like, it makes no sense for furniture to ship from overseas. Mm-hmm. So the, the young Chinese consumers are savvy, right? These kids are savvy. So I know no matter how much I'm paying for, this is something that is going to be built in China. And this yeah. is something that must be built in China. So there's no use that you tell me this is designed in Sweden. It, you know, like there is no use at all to tell me this is designed in Italy. I know this is made in China. So one of the advantage that Chinese brand has is is definitely supply chain, you know, like, like what you've mentioned. So I think the supply chain is really a game of quantity, right? So Mm -hmm. at the start, when a brand is just growing, right, they wouldn't be able to manufacture in bulk. So their price point is not going to be super, super um, competitive. You know, they're going to make sure their price about the same with IKEA, but, you know, they're not earning a lot. So that implicates their various strategies, right? Because I'm not earning a lot. Okay, so I have to cut on my marketing budget. I have to cut on every other stuff. Mm -hmm. So as they grow and as they reach that critical mass, what happens is they have a decrease in their costs in terms of production. Yeah. It's just simple. So with that decrease of the costs in production, they are able to reinvest the same amount back to, you know, we're talking about story, we're talking about design, right? So this really helps them to speed up their growth. And now if you... It's a great thing that you talk about their retail stores because right now, Zhaozhou, I think they have 13 retail outlets. And if you really visit the 13 retail outlets, um, you realize that actually a lot of the products are priced even cheaper than IKEA. Hmm. And this is something that I didn't realize. You know, I, I walk in and I saw like, okay, I didn't realize they're selling this cheap. So Zhaozhou, to me, I thought they're, they're still selling a bit more expensive than IKEA. But being able to have access to that critical mass in terms of production mm-hmm. really helps them to lower their costs and increase their margin for every single product sold. So is that a normal company journey? You begin with products at slightly higher prices, you build a critical mass, and then you can lower your cost and you can reinvest the money into kind of your brand and all that. So you don't begin with the great, awesome brand. Is that what's happening in China? Uh, it, it is actually what is happening. So if you look at um, the normal journey, it, it is like every single company would roughly go through the same thing. Okay, But we are talking about specifically good company that reinvest their investments, reinvest their revenue into brand building. Mm-hmm. So you know, it, it's, it's very different with the previous set of 
Chinese traditional Chinese companies where they probably would reinvest into something else, right? They would reinvest into maybe supply chain. They would most likely also reinvest into products. Mm -hmm. But for the new companies that we are seeing, the new brands, actually they reinvest a lot of their revenue into brands building. Basically, if we want to simplify what they are doing, they are reinvesting revenue back to where the customers are able to see, feel, touch them. So they're reinvesting into um, making sure they have better photo quality. Mm-hmm. They're making sure they have um, better product photos. They have. They are reinvesting into better shop fronts, better e-commerce layouts, better WeChat management. Basically, these are things where it increases the brand perception of these brands in the consumer's heart. And that is something that is very different from, you know, the previous set of um, the more old school, um, traditional Chinese brands that we're seeing. You know, these guys might reinvest into R&D where the new brands are very, very focused on like, okay, I know I have to focus on producing a good products, but what is important is allowing the story to be heard by the young target audience and making sure that these stories gets continuously more sophisticated as they grow. Yeah, when looking at also uh, one thing hits you, right, which is that if they're able to do products at the same price as IKEA, but they're more localized, i.e. just culturally, it's easier for them to attract the core target group. The new young people of China, they're going to get a new apartment. Are we seeing this trend overall right now that that there are a lot of new furniture brands growing up out of China? Yes. So other than Zhaozuo, so Zhaozuo has, the interesting thing about Zhaozuo is they have uh, about 200k of fans on Taobao. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about Taobao fans, it's very interesting. It's, it is not the same with your Weibo fans or your WeChat fans. So these are fans that follows you uh, intentionally to buy. Yeah. So they have 200k fans and, um, and they've recently raised about... 20 million US dollars mm-hmm. in the Series B round. So um, with 20 million US dollars, we are expecting their valuation to be at least about 100 mil. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would mean um, they are doing maybe a yearly sales about 10 mil to 20 mil US dollars mm-hmm. in China. So I'm just giving you some stats about Zhaozuo. Another brand that we felt like has got a lot of potential uh, is called Zhiying. So Zhiying is an interesting brand uh, where we see Zhaozuo from Beijing and then Zhiying is from Shanghai. So the difference of Zhiying is that Zhiying is actually more online than offline. So Zhaozuo has ventured into uh, offline really quickly. So because I think they also modeled themselves uh, after IKEA. So IKEA mm-hmm. has got this super big, you know, um, stores where you can you can walk in, you can experience different things, right? So so Zhaozuo is modeled after that. So Zhiying is still very much online. They have offline experiential stores. Uh, the difference with Zhiying is they have about close to 900k of fans. So that is about four times of Zhaozuo mm-hmm. online on Taobao. Wow. And the difference is that if you look at Zhiying, um, the price is slightly more expensive than Zhaozuo. 
but it's still at a, a, a 20 to, it's not more than 20% more expensive than what we call the acceptable product price range. Okay. And Zhiying has more emphasis in product stories. I'm going to give a, a very simple example. So one of the co-founders of Zhiying is a Shanghainese. Mm-hmm. So as he was growing up, so they have to stay in very small apartment in Shanghai. And there is not much place for him to eat and to work on his own homework. So how he designed and how he played around with his furniture startup is that he designed a cupboard where you can open up one of the doors and place it flat diagonally mm-hmm. so that it becomes a table. It becomes hmm. a makeshift table. So this is one example of what we call interesting design, you know, yeah. plus the story. So as a Shanghainese, you know, when you are you are looking at the cupboard, uh, you're looking at the drawer, it is actually very interesting. So it shouts out to you personally that, hey, you know, there is actually a design twist to a traditional cupboard. And the design twist also has a story to, to this. Yeah. You're not just buying... Uh, the cupboard itself, you're not just buying the product itself, you're also buying the story behind it. So almost every single product from Zing has a special design twist that we realize it is really selling to the younger target audience. And that is one of the main reasons why, you know, compared to Zhao Zhuo, um, even though Zhao Zhuo has a bigger appeal to mass target audience, Zhiying has 900k fans and Zhao Zhuo has only about 200k fans on Taobao. And on the topic about brand stories, actually fashion is probably one of those categories where that is mostly important to communicate why you're designing a certain clothing in a different way and there we've also seen a huge growth of domestic brands everything from tier three four such as peacebird to tier one and more kind of hipster type of brands and we're going to focus on that today yeah i think it is particularly interesting because um you know when we talk about fashion it is very hard for a new chinese local fashion brand to break out right you know we have mm-hmm. so many other brands from overseas that's coming in strong you know we have off-white where you know it has um basically create a craze, you know, for everybody, you know, for the youngsters to buy off-white. So, you know, I, I think it is very interesting to talk about fashion. And for fashion, what we are witnessing is, of course, there are a bunch of um, old traditional fashion brands trying to make themselves younger, yeah. like Peace Bird, Feiyue, and um, like a bunch of other brands, like Meteor Bon We, a lot of initiative by these old brands trying to revitalize themselves. Uh, I think it's a lot more easier even though it is it is hard to change what people feel about them, but it's a lot easier because they have a lot of budget, right? But what is interesting is that we, we have a bunch of uh, younger brands, new brands by the young generation that's creating wave of uh, followings with very, very small budgets. So there's this brand called Mishan, which is actually very much different from the rest of the brands that we've seen. Their approach is very, very traditionally uh, Chinese. So the reason why I think Mishan is interesting is because among all the other Chinese brands where a lot of Chinese brands still focus on functionality, 
and selling across as a necessity, Mishan is very focused on building a brand. In the start, they started with a lot of crossover with Chinese traditional companies and corporates and associations. So one very good example is them having a crossover with the Forbidden Cities. They release clothings, fashion wares and accessories. And since then, they've started crossover with a lot of different elements of a Chinese culture. But wait, wait. So the Forbidden City, that I do not associate with the new modern kind of look. Yeah, so why they are interesting is because they are able to take a very, very traditional element and make it modern. So a bit about Mishan is that it is a brand that's created by two designers that has been living in London. So basically, Kate and George started the brand in 2014. And what they really wanted to do is to start a traditional Chinese brand, you know, that has uh, oriental elements with new designs. So since then, again, very much because of the lack of the budget, they started with online. They're mainly on Taobao. They're mainly selling on Taobao. And for fashion brands, they have now been able to garner close to a million fans on Taobao. And it is really, really difficult to to, to go your fans on Taobao. We all know. And and when people follow you on Taobao, it is intentional follow so that, you know, I get updated when you're releasing something so that, you know, I... I, I have the intention to buy, so I'll follow you on Taobao. And they've started with different crossovers, with the Forbidden Cities, taking elements from the Forbidden Cities to put it onto clothings, apparels, accessories, bags. And, you know, basically they haven't stopped since then, right? So starting from 2014, um, they did a lot of crossover and collaboration with Chinese-related cultures. I think they did not less than... 20 crossovers with, you know, different Chinese associations to talk about the Chinese culture. Recently, we've also seen them making the mark, you know, being able to feature and showcase themselves in New York Fashion Week. I think this is something that is really, really amazing. So just from a brand perspective and looking at your products, uh, do they act like a fashion brand or... Is it a necessity type of clothing? So for Mishan, they're very design focused and definitely a fashion brand. So how we separate um, a necessity and functionality brand versus a fashion brand is that a necessity and functionality brand would be something like Uniqlo. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you buy their heat tag, you buy their t-shirt, you know, this is something that you wear, you know, comfortably. But when we're talking about fashion brand and when you buy fashion brand, you're not paying for the clothes itself you're paying for the brand right you're paying for the brand story you're paying because you believe you are part of the brand you 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 agree with the story itself so that that is where i think you know kate and george from mishan has done it specifically well they are like hey you know why does the world not know about chinese culture you know i can put chinese culture onto something that is really fashionable you know i can get models from new york fashion week wearing something that belongs to chinese in a way that is presented elegantly, fashionally, and trendy. 
Yeah, that's very interesting because everything you just said about fashion brand that we recognize, right? Because we got all these Western brands, everything from Louis Vuitton, Chanel to, you know, Acne, etc. And although in theory we know about it, we actually up until lately haven't seen many Chinese brands being able to execute and actually do this. I mean, the theory everyone knows about how to build a brand. The question is about how to actually do it. And this is the first time actually we're seeing fashion brands being able to do it. Definitely. I mean, if you dissect into the details of brand building, what we've talked about furniture brands is actually uh, more complicated in a fashion brand's context, right? Yeah. So, you know, we talk about first the product itself. For furniture, you know, it's it's, it's going to be a fixed SKU. But for the fashion brand, one SKU, like one kind of style will have different SKU, right? You can have it in different colors, different print, different size. Yeah. This is crazy, okay? And you also need to work out what size makes sense for your consumer type, right? If this is an Asian feet, if this is a Western Caucasian feet, so there is complexity. With the complexity, that would means that you have to invest more money into manufacturing more products. Then you have the packaging side where you, you also talk about the packaging where story is concerned. If you go a bit deeper into how a brand build its story, it is mainly from their campaign shot, their lookbook. It can go down to where they film the campaign shot and their choice of models. This all boils down to how much budget you have, right? Can you hire a good photographer? Okay, so first, are you able to tell the difference between what a good photographer and a bad photographer delivers? Okay. Are you able to get a good director to help you with the shot? You know, are you able to pay for the model itself? Are you able to pay for the makeup artist? Really, there is an increased complexity for a fashion brand in terms of their products and also packaging. And then finally, you would then look at the price, right? So because it is so competitive, the fashion brands would not be able to price it at an expensive price point. So for Mishan, I think what is really, really amazing about them is they are still able to sell their stuff at an affordable price range. So we're looking at anywhere between 699 quite to 1,400 quite for uh, outerwear or a shirt. And then we're looking at somewhere around 1,000 quite to 2,000 quite for something that's a bit more sophisticated. That's basically Zara's price point. For so many years, we've had these really awesome Western brands coming into the market, educating consumers, but also educating a lot of entrepreneurs. And now these entrepreneurs are thinking, you know what, why don't I do stuff like this with a twist that's easier to market to a certain target group of China because apparently this segment of users are growing in a separate direction. And I don't think the big Western brands have identified that yet. And I think another good example of this is particle fever that's kind of in the new category of healthy clothes we would call it lululemon nike type of category you know yoga pants and whatnot but they've kind of 
taken it and made a little bit more local Chinese twist, right? Yeah. So particular fever is also very special in the sense whereby you, you're looking at Lululemon. They're about Lululemon's price point. Yeah. And and this is because we know that the acceptable price point of a good Adelizia wear, this category is not really cost sports wear. It is Adelizia wear, right? So we know the, the price point for Adelizia wear is actually about Lululemon's price point. And mm-hmm. that is proven by the market because Lululemon is growing in China, right? Yep. So with that, with that price point, it is actually easier for them to maneuver to earn from per SKU sales and then reinvest the money back to you know their product shot. Yeah. So how they do it different with Lululemon is Lululemon because it shouts out from a very Western culture point of view. You know, Particle Fever is very much focused on design. So if you look at the market of Adelizio Wear, one strategy for you to enter the market is really to look out at what is lacking in the market, right? So you want to not compete in whatever that is in the market. So Adelizio Wear, you have your mass brand like Nike, Adidas, and um, you know Reeboks and these other brands, right? And then you have the slightly more expensive ones uh, with better quality, as yeah. they claim, like Under Armour, like Lululemon. But then there is a gap. Now, the gap is, hey, you know, the tier one young consumer would like to shout out to the world that they're very cool, you know, doing sports. <laughs> and then they could also, with their sportswear, you know, put up something. And then, you know, they can, after their yoga session, their gym session, work out to grab a brunch, you know, easily or grab a dinner easily. So Particle Fever really fits that gap. They provide really trendy athleisure wear. So they don't even want to categorize themselves as sportswear, right? It's less functionality and more about, hey, you know, I'm, I'm cooler. The design is better. You know, I'm going to give you, you know, this very shiny outer wear where you can run on the treadmill. And then also you can wear out uh, to grab a drink with your friend. When it comes to these type of products that you are using as a consumer to shout out to the world, to showcase who you who you are and your personality and your culture, obviously it makes more sense to maybe wear something that is designed with a small twist of Asian in it than taking a totally Western brand and do it. I think that's where the consumer have matured now, right? Where you're very much looking for something that is more niche and that is more genuine closer to who you are and where you grew up versus just the overall brand that exists for everyone around the world. Yeah, and if you look at it in the most simple way, we we just notice the pattern is this is designed and produced by people like me, right? So instead of maybe, you know, designed and made by somebody that is um, culturally different or age group difference, these products and these brands are really made by people that has the same culture with you and is in the same age group. So the natural fit is they really know what you need, right? They, they, they know the kind of price point that you're going to buy. They know the products that you need. They know the design that you most likely would like. So it, it is specifically more easy for them to reach out to this tier one young target audience in China because they are themselves tier one young target audience in China. 
And you've actually mentioned one word very often, Emmy, which is the word online. Considering, you know, the huge growth of e-commerce and now social e-commerce and social media channels such as TikTok or Red in China. One thing I've seen here is that these new up-and-coming brands are really good at leveraging these new social channels just in order to build these huge fan bases, but also to do product development. When I mention online, it is pretty much um the only way to get started, okay? So we have to understand offline is not a good channel when you want to start a brand, right? Mm. It is, you would spend most of your money with rental and then the rest of your money on renovations and then you realize, hey, you've got nothing left. So online being the most straightforward way and direct way for you to reach that niche of target audience that is going to help you morph your product is particularly important and the patterns that we see from this brand is similar it's it is that they are able to first launch a brand online tell a story and make their target audience understand what is different between them and something that the target audience would buy or has always been buying and then get the target audience interested about them the next step they would work on is growing their brand with their target audience. Basically, it's like any tech product, right? So now these young brands also take on a tech product methodology. You know, they, they would roll out a product, they would look at the market feedback about the products, and they would reiterate, you know, they would launch new product ranges until they hit a SKU that helps them hit a critical mass. And I think that's the difference of China versus many other countries. Thanks to very mature social e-commerce behavior here, new domestic brands have a much easier way to get started and sell products and get to critical mass without these huge investments that might be required in other markets where people aren't that used to share about fashion, to buy new things on the internet. I think it is really intuitive, right? Like um, one of the things that I've been saying is these brands are created and made by uh, also young tier one target audience uh, in China. So these are the same group of people um, that is very similar to the creators and the makers of these brands. So these creators and makers of these brands, they themselves understand up to what extent they've been using the social media. So when they kickstart their brand strategy, even though they might not not have the ability to launch a marketing strategy themselves, they intuitively will be able to understand um, the difference between a good strategy and a bad strategy. So, you know, that is specifically very, very different from the rest of the world. So um, coming from overseas, you know, going to China, you're really clueless, right? You don't know what strategy is good. You don't know what platform makes sense. Um, and you don't know how much you need to spend. So let's talk a little bit about the future. So we're seeing these domestic brands now grow up. They have a great skill set in building brands, at least among the Chinese tier one consumer. And they are making quite a lot of money because, again, there are a lot of people in the tech sector. We're seeing huge internet companies grow up in China thanks to a large consumer base. And before they even go out and globally expand, they have made hundreds of millions of dollars or actually in some cases billions of dollars. 
and then they have so much money on their bank account before they go on the global expansion that enables them to do more mistakes than normal companies when they do globally. Although one thing with the older generation of Chinese companies is that they've been pretty bad at telling the brand story. I mean, if we look at some of the Chinese brands that, that have expanded so far, they usually sell very functional products that are good quality, but they're not charging that extra premium the way that Apple are doing with their iPhone. Going back to our topic about this new generation of domestic brands, um, one of the, their critical things that they are very good at is building brands in the competition against companies like Nike or Lululemon or Ikea, right? At least for me, that indicates, okay, they have a skill set. So the question is, can they do it abroad? Do they have any potential to compete outside China? Majority of them will be able to compete on a global level. I think it really depends on categories, right? So like if we talk about the brands that we just spoke of, uh, for furnitures, I think it is a lot easier than fashion. Because for furnitures, it is... It is very straightforward. You know, it is about the design, the price point, and, you know, once the design and price point is okay, I just have to figure out the shipment. Yeah. You know, they, they can just do it via online. Um, the only difficulties that I see is that because everywhere in the world uses a different set of online social media than China. So that is um, the interesting thing and the difficulties that, you know, we are seeing. So, you know, basically to market themselves on WeChat to effectively market themselves on WeChat overseas is impossible, right? To to do anywhere else in China, most likely you will have to market yourself on Facebook, on Google, right? And on various other channels like Instagram. So, you know, they will have to get a new set of digital talents to help them and they have to figure out their P&Ls, you know, when they want to invest in global expansion. That is the only difficulties that I'm seeing for furniture companies. But in a broader context, sure, maybe you need to recruit people that know Instagram advertising and Instagram content, but that's so much easier than needing to, for example, recruit people that know how to open retail chains across 30 different countries. Yeah, of course. I mean, when we're looking at the stages of these brands, they would have to start with, most likely, it, the effectiveness would be starting from online first still overseas, yeah. even for furniture brands, because um, they would have to really test through uh, different online platforms. Mm -hmm. And then when they have really achieved a critical mass, then they would look at, okay, opening a retail stores uh, offline in that specific country. If you look at how another brand did it, not a Chinese brand, like for Avalane, right? So Avalane is a San Francisco brand. The way they deal with their overseas expansion is that they would only open up their special language of the website after they have gotten critical mass in terms of the orders from that countries. Okay. Yeah. So it, it is similar. I mean this this young brands makers and creators know that, hey, you know, it is not the way to go into the market and do offline first. You mm -hmm. know, they would still be like, okay, I'm gonna test the market online and depending on uh, effectiveness online, then that's gonna affect my offline strategies. Yeah, definitely. And if we actually look at numbers about, you know, global luxury consumption and stuff like that, actually Chinese consumers are going to stand for a very big part of that. And so there is a very realistic take that 
the global product development from brands such as Louis Vuitton or Chanel will get more and more skewed towards the taste of the Chinese tier one consumer. And I feel there's a scenario where through that, more and more people in the West are going to get educated and start buying products that are slightly more towards the Chinese twist in terms of style and in terms of design, which probably opens the door a little bit more for these domestic Chinese brands to actually expand globally with their products. Yes, I I do agree. And I also do not agree on, on that context. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think one of the challenge we see is the durability of uh, the product itself. If you really look at the products that is made in China for these two uh, furnitures, no doubt they are really good in qualities. But in terms of different countries, you have different climates and you have different usage. So I think there is a lot that these brands need to do and localize in different markets. You know, you can okay. be in one part of the world where, you know, simply, you know, the, the things that you put on table could be much heavier, you know, like there is a, a requirement for heavy usage. You know, it, it's, it's not something or, or this table is not designed or stress test for heavy usage. It could be as simple as that, right? It could be also as simple as um, how heavy the person is, average size of the person when they're lying down on the bed, yeah. bed frame versus Asian, right? So uh, I think those are product issues that we see. And also what I feel and what I think is that there is not much need for these companies to go abroad. So the Chinese market is growing and in a lot of contexts, this brand is going to expand in China by cities, so they're going to conquer cities by cities. And the market is just tremendous in China. If we more generally look at this new generation, up-and-coming brands from China, where do you feel their strengths are? Is it in how to leverage the digital channels, such as social media and e-commerce? Or is it in how they understand the new target group or their supply chain? What is it? I think the strength is really with how they maneuver online platforms. And if you if you really look at China and the difference with the rest of the world is that China is a country that's very advanced with online buying, right? Yeah. So online purchase, WeChat, Pay, Alipay, it's very easy for anybody to buy anything online. And I'm saying this, with or without money, it is easy, right? You can use Huawei to pay, you know, you could pay with um, installments really easy. The ease of purchase uh, has made China a very good platform for new brands with the capability to shout out to young consumers, easier to start. So Mm -hmm. this is a fact. Where else in the rest of the world, um, it is still very traditional. You know, a lot of people, I mean, they do buy online. But if you you just look around you, right, if you are in some other parts of the world, like even in Singapore, people still prefer to buy things offline. Anything that I would buy in Singapore, I would still have to 
take a look at the, at the at the product. I would still have to visit the stores, experience, test the products before I make that purchase. But it's totally different in China. Yeah, it's so astonishing because the more we study these domestic brands and the more I talk to you and me, uh, I get this kind of nervous feeling about that the traditional, very big Western brands, whether it is IKEA or Zara or whatnot, are under totally new threat domestically within China. They're going to be outcompeted not only thanks to good access to supply chain, but actually people that maybe are able to build better brands than they are and being able to execute much better because they know the social or the digital channels much better. Yeah, I've been talking to and also advising a lot of overseas brands and the same thing that I've been telling them over and over again, you know, if they are looking at Chinese strategies, if they are looking at how to enter China, their time is now, okay? Because there is no better time because the market is going to get more competitive, right? There are um, a bunch of young Chinese that has graduated from Parsons, Central St. Martins, you know, from the art schools of New York, coming back to China and basically understanding Western storytelling, understanding the Western sophistication taste, you know, in certain product design, will come back and fuse it with their Chinese culture to produce something that is more suitable in the market and produce something at a better price. So in that, after a few years, Western brands that doesn't understand the culture difference or who doesn't understand the threat of these young Chinese brands would be really obsolete. You know, they would have a hard time because they would not be able to react fast enough, even though they see China as a big market. Without the DNA, without mm-hmm. the culture feed, it is still going to be very difficult for them to change from any anywhere from their brand story to the price point to even the product itself. Fascinating. So are you saying that me as a Swede, I should be worried that IKEA one day might not be in China anymore because it's outcompeted by a local new furniture brand? Yes, I think we ha- we might be seeing that very soon. We might be seeing that very soon. And if you really look at the market, this young target audience, uh, they are very open, right? It's no, gone are the days where, oh, I'm just going to buy this from from the Western brand because the Western brand is always better than local brands. No, these Chinese consumers are savvy. They know every single shit is made in China. They are paying for a premium because, oh, this is a Swedish company. So they, they know the in and outs of brands building. They know the in and outs of how import words and import words, custom text works. Because thanks to the availability in terms of information of social media, mm-hmm. so they grow up with information. So with that, they're making very clever decisions and very clever choices in terms of purchase. So, you know, overseas brands that comes in with import tax and custom tax would really suffer. They would really suffer and they would really not being able to compete in terms of price point. Well, I'm I'm so happy to be able to talk to you about this because a lot of my friends usually say I'm crazy when claiming that we might see a China without IKEA. So thank you so much for joining us today, Emmy. Thank you, Tom. And where can people find you on social media? 
So you can add me on LinkedIn. So if you search Emmy uh, Teo, E-M-M-Y-T-E-O, you'll be able to find me on uh, LinkedIn. So you'll see that my company's views and I'm also a growth hacker and new retail strategies. Thank you again. And as usual, if you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter. My handle is at T-O-M-X-I-O. Thank you for listening.